Uh, Chris, I have to say, I don't really know what the hell you're talking about. I'm totally consistent with my mic technique. Constantly in the same spot. I, I speak slowly, consistently, and always with the proper distance to avoid any sort of variations in volume. What the fuck is your problem? Episode 2. On today's show, we continue to pretend we know absolutely anything about world affairs. From free speech to the Iranian nuclear program, we'll talk shit about absolutely anything. Also, we have live in the G7 studios, activist and photojournalist John Elmer discussing Israel's disengagement from Gaza. So stay tuned, because G7 Radio is truly a cause for for alarm. It truly is a cause for alarm today here on G7 Radio. Welcome to day 1076 of the invasion of Iraq. Also the uh, 15th anniversary of the first invasion of Iraq. And the subsequent sanctions against Iraq leading to the deaths of an estimated 500,000 Iraqi children to which the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, replied that she thought it was worth it. Also, 8th anniversary, roughly, of uh, the U.S. bombing of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant in the Sudan. That's right. Leading to uh, the estimated deaths of 10,000 civilian Sudanese, uh, both direct impact and uh, corollary impact from uh, lack of medicines. I think also on this day, we're up to $96 billion of aid to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, courtesy of the U.S., are we not? I believe we are somewhere in that area. And I think we're also, uh, we're celebrating, a, what, the fifth, fourth or fifth anniversary of Canadian security certificates? Yet about 500 detainees, they call them, they're actually prisoners of war, held without charge. Without charge. In Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Not to mention Abu Ghraib. Yes, the torture, humiliation, finely honed torture techniques, I will mention. Yes. Not, and- not an isolated incident. Institutional no. policy. On top of this, we're also celebrating two decades of Chuck Norris and Stallone movies depicting all Arabs as scumbags. It is within this context, G7 listeners, yes. that we attempt to assess those Danish cartoons. The controversy. Context. 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 Context, context, context. people. Now, I got to say, as rational, secular, well, we think we're rational. We think we're secular. Attempting to be critical human beings. Uh, Threats of death, violence, rioting in the streets. Over cartoons. Over cartoons. Seems. This is, it's a wall. It's ludicrous. It's insane. Yes. Uh, Especially when driven by a religion. Theocrat. 
the <laughs> the ocaratics. Yes. However, but context. 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 I, I, I context. mentioned to you. I mentioned to you the the day the story broke. I felt like flushing a Koran down the toilet in effigy in solidarity. And then I tried to understand the context. Yes. It's a, you could say it is of two minds. The thing is, most issues are not black and white. They're not so cut and dried. And uh, I don't know why all of the portrayal of this issue has been either you're for free speech or you're siding with uh, uh, theocratic fascists. There's the, it's not so simple. No, let me read you a little thing from a Danny Schechter article on the issue. Please do. Danny Schechter, of course, is a media analyst at MediaChannel.org and a regular contributor to the Znet commentaries. And I quote here, Many Arabs believe they are in a long war with the West already. Culturally denigrated in our press, under physical bombardment in Iraq, and new threats in Iran. Many feel treated as by the West as children who must be lectured or spanked constantly. They are applauded for going to the polls, but then have foreign assistance yanked for voting, quote-unquote, wrongly. A Danish media exercise in free speech last September that many in the West dismiss as no big thing has been followed by pro forma calls on Arabs who protest to become more thick-skinned and, quote-unquote, get over it. After all, it is argued... It's only an illustration by one man. Would the reaction have been any different if the cartoons were crudely racist or anti-Semitic? End quote. I would also add, though, that uh, in Danny Schechter's commentary there, uh, wondering if they were racist. I mean, I don't know if anybody's seen these cartoons. I haven't. Some of them clearly are racist. I won't look at them. It's... <laughs> Some of them clearly are racist. There's no question. And I, I also have to add, these are terrible cartoons. Like, who drew these things? Like, they look like a fucking child did this. So, you know, that just makes it even more uh, frustrating for me. Because, man, like, seriously, where are the good cartoonists in this world? Clearly, they're not making uh, potentially racist ones. So one of them is kind of funny. Because there's uh, Muhammad... And he's standing up in the clouds, and there's a bunch of guys who looked. They must have just blown themselves up because they're all smoking. And uh, cigarettes. He said, "Like there's smoke coming oh, off their bodies." They're, they're yeah, yeah, yes, right. Like suicide bombers. Yes. And, uh, and Muhammad saying, "Stop, stop! We don't have any virgins left." <laughs> you know, because they're supposed to be for 40, 72, 72 virgins. forty-two virgins, forty-seven virgins. So, what's our point here, Chris? My view. I don't know if we have a point. But my view is, I am a free speech fundamentalist, but I also try to understand context, why people react certain ways. Yeah. And there is definitely a context here. I think that's all vis -a -vis we can... Vis-a-vis the West. Whatever. And that's what I what wish. What does vis-a-vis mean? Vis-a-vis, -vis, that would be like between. Vis-a-vis -vis the West and the Arab world. Yes. I think that's, that's, I think that's what we should expect and demand of our media is to provide this I context. I demand! What'd you say? <clears throat> Just to respect this context and maybe explore it for people. Explore the context. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so, there's that. Uh, speaking of new threats uh, to Iran, as a, uh, this is called a segue, um, there was also a, a bit of news this month uh, that uh, frankly shocked me and of course there's no shock in the mainstream press as there should be in uh george bush's uh, last proposed budget 
He included $27 million uh, to help. This is quoting from Democracy Now. DemocracyNow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. $27 million to help jumpstart the country's first new nuclear weapons program in 20 years. New, this is a new program, okay? This is after the Cold War is over. Nuclear weapons are supposed to be a thing of the past. The money will be used to fund a competition between the Los Alamos and the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories to find and design a new generation of nuclear bombs to replace the country's entire nuclear arsenal. Mm, that is electrifying. No wonder you were shocked. Last week, the nation's top nu- nuclear weapons executive, Linton Brooks, said, quote, we are on the verge of an exciting time. I will also point out that Bechtel, which mm. is a company which has won extensive contracts rebuilding Iraq and has a long history connection to the U.S. administration. Casper Weinberger. Yes, former Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan. And, of course, there's many other linkages as well in the administration and that company's uh, executives. They own and run the Los Alamos Laboratory. So there's another connection. It's a, it's a large industry. Mm. All interconnected, bent on global empire, ultimately global destruction. Well, with that in mind, here on day 1076 of the war in Iraq, we bring you Christ on a crutch. Caveat Eptar.
Before we tell you that that uh, was Man Lifting Banner, Banner with Empire Empires from their 7-inch Myth, Myth of Freedom. Freedom. Uh, uh, it's got to be from the early 90s sometime. Time. Man Lifting Banner, Banner uh, uh, vocalist, of course, wanted to form Dead, Dead Stool Pigeon, Pigeon. Another, another incredible, incredible band, band from the Netherlands. Were you here what before that, Chris? Chris? What? What were we here before that, Chris? Christ on a crutch. Christ on a... <laughs> well, well, motherfucking well. John Elmer. Who the fuck is John Elmer? I'll tell you who the fuck John Elmer is. John Elmer is a Canadian photojournalist who just got back from six months in the Middle East. He was covering the Israeli disengagement. Those are air quotes for you fucking idiots out there. In Gaza. We have John here in the studio, don't we, Derek? Uh, yes, we do. You know, uh, John's writings, interviews, and photographs have appeared in numerous publications mm. worldwide, mm-hmm. including most recently, the Journal of Palestine Studies. Never seen it. In the Progressive. Heard of it. He also reports for the New Standard. I we're, subscribe. We're big fans of the New Standard here. And also Z Magazine. Also something I'm aware of. So, uh, yeah, we have John here in the studio. And, uh, John, maybe you can start us. <laughs> Where'd he go? Uh, we have John here in the studio. Right and, here, uh, live, live. Yeah, so maybe, John, maybe you can start out by telling us a little about uh, 
exactly where you were for the past six months, um, what different areas you spent your time in and, uh, what you saw there. Here, you can use my mic. Cool. Again, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I spent six months, uh, split between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, uh, predominantly between the cities of Janine in the Northwest Bank and Gaza City in central Gaza Strip. I was over in the Middle East for the six months from June till roughly December, uh, reporting on, as you said, Israel's disengagement, quote unquote. It's called a disengagement because, uh, which actually the terminology has no uh, previous resonance. The term uh, was used because the actual term withdrawal, which would be the most commonsensical term to use for right. the withdrawal of soldiers and settlers, um, is, a, is a legal term with international legal baggage that the Israeli, quote-unquote, disengagement from Gaza didn't, uh, didn't adhere to. Namely, Israel still controls the borders, the airspace, the water. Uh, entry in and out of the Gaza Strip is still completely under Israeli control, and the area is still completely under military occupation, which is where we got this term disengagement uh, rather than withdrawal. Right, so it's kind of a phantom term uh, it is. to kind of provide the illusion that... That it was a step towards peace, and I think from Israel's point of view, it was a major strategic uh, coup, diplomatic coup, uh, international public opinion coup, because um, what what this disengagement did in the international press and international uh, sort of public opinion was it made Israel uh, seem as though they were making steps towards peace, making steps towards withdrawal from occupied territory. uh, And, you know, the idea that, uh, that, that Israel is moving towards a peaceful settlement when the reality is uh, the disengagement was the removal of five or 6,000 Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip. The area remained under uh, Israeli military control. Uh, As I said, there's attack helicopters in the air constantly. There's warships patrolling the sea, uh, and the artillery batteries are lined up along the border of Gaza. So really nothing uh, physically changed in the terms of Palestinian uh, freedom of movement or or, or anything like that in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Meanwhile, according to Israeli Interior Ministry sources, uh, Interior interior Ministry publications, there was 8,000 Jewish settlers moved during the, the disengagement period into the West Bank, into settlements in illegally occupied West Bank. So, uh, you know, this step towards peace was actually a net gain of 12,000 settlers in occupied territory, settlers being, you know, one of the main obstacles to a, to a just solution to the Israel-Palestine right. conflict. So, yeah, it was a big smokescreen. Uh, while all the world, you know, called Sharon a courageous leader uh, for withdrawing, you know, 6,000 settlers from an area where there's a million and a half Palestinians living in some of the world's most densely populated conditions. Uh, you know, to describe the situation in Gaza is, uh, is really something that's difficult to do, you know, over the radio or, uh, you know, you really do need photography, video to see just how people are living on the ground. I mean, you can throw statistics around until you're blue in the face, but really, you know, to see what it's like to live, uh, you know, barefoot, you know, with raw sewage running in the streets in a refugee camp with a population density of 70,000 people per square kilometer. You know, these these living conditions are the essential attributes of Palestinian daily life, and this is what they face. and, And, you know, this is the face of the occupation that's completely missing 
from Western discourse, the face of, uh, of real people. You know, it's not an abstract uh, debate to be had in, you know, in, in radical coffee shops or university campuses. Right. Uh, it's real people's lives. And, and, and I think that's the most important thing that's lost on Palestinians. They're never uh, spoken of as individuals uh, living in truly wretched conditions in, in the Gaza Strip and it's many a, places in the West Bank. It's a removed issue that people can... Uh kind of pay lip service to but not maybe they can't identify wholly with because it's totally outside of maybe people's experience in, in north america yeah for sure and you and you know it is outside people's experiences and we don't have a lot uh, a lot of avenues as sort of you know generally speaking canadians to you know to touch on what it's like to live as a refugee uh, but you know you have more than five million palestinian refugees living in the world's largest diaspora world's largest refugee population you know living uh, from coast to coast in Canada, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm lecturing in Moose Jaw or St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, you'll have Palestinians in the audience, and, right. you know, all over the world. As well, you have almost 2 million Palestinians living in refugee camps outside of the Gaza Strip in West Bank, uh, literally, you know, almost 2 million within walking distance of their former homes uh, in what is now Israel. So would you say that, obviously, it seems to be that you, you feel that the the disengagement or the pull out isn't doesn't really signify any sort of uh policy shift at all uh in in israel in regards to the occupied territories it's uh merely a pr move yeah i mean what it signals is israel's move and and israel as is generally the case israeli planners and government officials and spokespeople are generally pretty straightforward about israel's uh, strategic intentions Uh, it's it's not immediately clear uh, why there's so much uh, confusion and why the conflict is played as as being so complicated and complex that people can't access it. Because uh, the reality is Israeli leaders tell us exactly what they're doing. And Ehud Olmert, who is uh, Sharon's deputy and is now the acting prime minister of Israel and will likely be the next prime minister of Israel, uh, gave a very candid interview on Israeli TV last week in which he said that what Israel is doing is unilaterally drawing the borders of the state. Uh, for listeners out there, it's worth noting that Israel is the only state in the world without declared borders. Uh, and the legacy of Sharon uh, was that he was going to be the sort of Israeli leader, the founding father, if you will, that laid down the borders, the final borders of the state of Israel. Um, along the lines of what now Prime Minister Ehud Olmert calls maximum Jews, minimum Arabs. Namely, you, you, with the wall that people, you know, the, the, the apartheid wall, as Palestinians call it, the security fence, as Israelis call it, right. is a major part of this project. You, you create uh, borders for maximum Jews, minimum Arabs. Uh, you put the Palestinians essentially in ghettos, uh, and you make the state of Israel the largest square footage possible with the minimum amount of Arabs possible. And the Gaza Strip then fits perfectly into that because you have a million and a half Palestinians living amongst, uh, you know, 5,000, 6,000 Jews living amongst a million and a half Palestinians. Uh, Demographically, it's an impossibility. It's a strategic impossibility for the state of Israel. Um, But they've been very clear about this plan. Uh, very clear. And I think one thing that's worth noting to listeners is if if one is trying to understand the Israel-Palestine conflict as two states uh, fighting over some sort of disputed territory, it's going to be impossible to access what's really going on there. Because this, what you have is one state, the state of Israel, that has complete economic, military, uh, social, diplomatic control over the entire area. And within the state of Israel, you have Palestinian 
uh, you know, nominally autonomous areas within the state of Israel. And, you know, you can call these formations whatever you want. Uh, the Israeli planners, Ariel Sharon, uh, calls them cantons. In, in uh, apartheid South Africa, the Afrikaners called them Bantustans. Uh, in, you know, Nazi-occupied Europe, they were called ghettos. As we know here in North America, they're called, they're reserves. called reserves or reservations. Uh, they're the same, you know, they're the same strategic uh, imperative and slightly different tactical uh, ways of realizing that. And, you know, I drove here from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg, and you drive uh, from one indigenous uh, reservation to the next. They're essentially ghettos uh, that don't need to have concrete walls around them because they're so far north that no one would bother with the land in any case except the logging companies and what have you that right. uh, are encroaching on the land. But uh, if we needed here in Canada to build walls, we would. And I think Winnipeg's a perfect example of one of the first places that that would likely happen.
Holy fuck. That sacrifice, Scarborough's best. With my eyes, he read from 1991's Apocalypse Inside. And before that, Derek, what did we hear? We heard uh, Midnight Oil with The Dead Heart from their 1987 album, Diesel and Dust. Landmark album. Landmark album. Did I mention to you that Robert Benatti from Sacrifice is a huge Leafs fan? No, you didn't mention that. He's a huge Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Interesting. Just another reason to love Sacrifice. You know what's funny about that is that I don't give a fuck about hockey. We're here with John Elmer, who's just recently returned from the Gaza Strip. John, I felt that the media portrayal in North America of the disengagement on the Israeli side was very, very dramatic. And I wanted to know from your experience when you were over there, if that was really the whole picture, if that was an accurate representation of the Israeli reaction. And I'm also curious uh, if you could talk a little bit about the compensation packages that were reportedly being given to the families who were displaced during the disengagement. Well, about the drama, it's interesting to know because there was this sort of discussion, was there going to be a civil war in Israel uh, and this kind of thing. And uh, the Israeli general who was in charge of the disengagement, the the, the point man for the disengagement, uh, described it to an Israeli newspaper that uh, rather than Gettysburg, you know, rather than civil war, he said, what we did was Spielberg. Uh, it was theater. Uh, it was essentially, you know, symbolic protest. And it's worth noting to, to listeners that people, uh, the police and the army that went to evict those settlers were unarmed. And as a journalist who's reported on the ground in the occupied territories a couple of times now, I can tell you I have never come across unarmed uh, soldiers, needless to say. Uh, Very rarely do you even come across unarmed Israelis, the general population, uh, you know, heavily armed population. And so the fact that it was sort of soft baseball hat uh, soldiers that went in to evict these people is is another element uh, of the theater. Uh, in terms of the compensation packages, well, this is really interesting because the settlers themselves are predominantly what are called economic settlers. So despite the fact that they're played uh, as being sort of, you know, uh, religious uh, purists who, you know, have some sort of biblical claim on the land, the vast majority of the settlers are living in uh, settlements in the West Bank uh, because of the quality of life, because of deep subsidies that are given by the state of Israel, um, you know, compensation packages, because of the fact that they have backyards with swimming pools, uh, you know, essentially suburban life, the same reason that people move to suburbs in Canada, they're likely to move uh, into the West Bank. So initially, they got major uh, uh, grant package and loan packages to move into the settlements. Well, then when those settlements, uh, which were known to be on illegally occupied land all along, uh, when those settlements were uprooted, Israel provided compensation to Gaza settlers, uh, many of whom got two million shekels, which is works out to be, uh, you know, about half a million American dollars for leaving their houses in the Gaza Strip, houses on occupied land that were known to be illegal, uh, you know, where they're being protected by an entire. Uh, division of the Israeli army. So the resources that went into them uh, directly through military protection, through infrastructure, they have their own roads, there's Jews only roads uh, to get to these settlements. A settler can live in the heart of the West Bank or the heart of the Gaza Strip and travel from their home to Tel Aviv uh, or Jerusalem without seeing an Arab. It's really an, it's an incredible thing. And the roads are so secluded, so separated, uh, that, you know, th- this is the lifestyle choice and people were 
were still then given huge compensation. People may have seen on, on the news over the last couple of weeks Katrina victims being uh, evacuated from their hotels in the south. Well, it's interesting to note around the same time uh, Katrina happened, around the same time as the disengagement, the settlers who were, disen- who were uh, ev- evacuated from the Gaza Strip, many of whom are still living in hotels and resorts today in Israel. Uh, long after Katrina victims were evacuated, uh, the settlers who were living on illegally occupied land and knew it and were compensated richly are still being provided for uh, while their homes are built elsewhere. And, of course, uh, I guess on the flip side of that, uh, Palestinians who uh, have their homes bulldozed or, uh, you know, all of farmers who have their trees ripped up uh, to make way for new, new settlements or under the guise of uh, you know, smashing terrorist infrastructure. Um, obviously, there's no compensation for these people. No, Palestinians have received uh, exactly zero compensation for the, the 60 years of the conflict. The Palestinian refugees that are living in wretched camps in Lebanon, in Jordan, uh, in the Gaza Strip, in West Bank, and all over the world, Palestinians have received zero compensation. Palestinians whose homes were demolished uh, naturally receive, receive zero compensation. In fact, they're told they deserve it. Uh, After Israel announced that it was leaving the Gaza Strip in early 2004, from that time until they left, they demolished 2,500 Palestinian homes in the Gaza Strip. After acknowledging that they were leaving the territory, they carried out an orgy of violence, uh, which included the assassination of Hamas's top leadership, you know, now Hamas being the government uh, in Palestine. You get the idea that uh, they're literally liquidating the next generation of political leadership, and they knew it. And they knew it full well, uh, and they carried this out, uh, you know, knowing there was international sort of surprise that, that Hamas won the elections. But on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza and in Israel, there wasn't surprise. Israeli planners were not surprised at all because they watched naturally uh, the Palestinian political scene. And nobody was surprised in Palestine that, that Hamas won the election. Perhaps the degree that, of the victory, you know, nuances here and there, sure, were surprising. But the, the fact that Hamas is a strong political movement and one that was in the position to lead the Palestinian people was known for, for a number of years by Israel. And so these house demolitions and the assassination of the political leadership are all part of the strategy of the disengagement, uh, a strategy that's, that's a strategy of occupation, not a strategy of, of war. It's different strategy and, and involves different tactics uh, within that strategy. You're listening to We're speaking with John Elmer, Canadian photojournalist who just came back from the Middle East where he was spending time in Gaza reporting Gaza. from the ground. Uh, speaking of elections, John, I did want to ask you uh, about the recent election of Hamas as the new Palestinian government. and A government not being recognized by other governments. This is true. And related to that, uh, after the election, there's been the threatening by the U.S. and Israel. Of, of the starving of aid. Yeah, starving of aid to Hamas. Could you talk about that, John? Well, the, I mean, first of all, the idea of starving Hamas of international aid is, of course, a euphemism, which means starving the Palestinian people. And again, this debate happens in, in, in sort of, you know, Western discourse, starve Hamas, uh, you know, 
starve the political organization. But in Israel, uh, they admitted it straight out. And Dov Weisglass, who is Sharon and Ehud Olmert's Karl Rove, the key political advisor, he actually said, we're going to starve the Palestinians. We're going to put them on a diet, he said. We won't kill them, uh, but we're going to put them on a diet. So you see, again, you have a, a disjuncture between the fact that Israeli planners uh, are quite open about what they're doing. And somehow when that message gets back to North America, it's obfuscated, it's put into euphemisms like starving Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. Well, starving Hamas or the Palestinian Authority means starving the Palestinian people who are living on the edge of, uh, of collapse as it is. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund did a report for the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority just before the disengagement. And in that report, in the executive summary of that report, they categorized the Palestinian economic collapse during the Intifada, during the last four years of uprising, as the worst economic collapse in modern history. This is the World Bank, which has uh, you know, a vested interest in, in monitoring <laughs> yeah. these kind of things. And this is you know, a significant statement, to put it in human terms. You're talking it's greater than the, you know, the Great Depression of the 1930s here in North America. But also, more importantly, and more, uh, and more close to where we are today, you're talking about the Argentine economic collapse, 2001-2002. The entire middle class of Argentina literally liquidated uh, within a week. But yet, according to the World Bank, the, the failure, the economic collapse of the Palestinians is greater than that. And in the executive summary of that World Bank report, James Wolfeson, who was the head of the uh, quartet's the Middle East envoy for the disengagement, said that, quote, above all else, the reason for this economic collapse was because of Israel's policy of restriction and closure, the lack of freedom of movement for the Palestinians, you know, fundamental economic collapse. So you're not talking about starving Hamas or starving the, you know, the Palestinian Authority. You're talking about starving the Palestinian people. Well, again, this leads into Hamas's popularity. On the ground in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank, as an observer from the outside looking, I can tell uh, you know, a layperson exactly pretty much which uh, part of the government you know, X or Y individual is in based on the car they drive, based on the size of their house. Okay, this is Palestinian Authority people, Fatah members, who have enriched themselves personally, you know, at the expense of the Palestinian people. Corruption that runs deep, it runs to the core of each and every Palestinian Authority program. There's almost nothing spared from this. You know, you driving around in BMWs and Mercedes, educating their children in the U.S. and in Canada, while Palestinians, 70% of the population, are struggling for daily survival, living on less than $2 a day. You know, these forms of corruption and, and personal enrichment at the expense of the greater good were a major reason why Fatah was kicked out. The status quo in the peace negotiations where Fatah uh, essentially acted as a, uh, as a buffer for the occupation, as a collaborationist element in these peace negotiations where Fatah and the Palestinian Authority gives to Israel concessions without gaining anything in return. This is the status quo for Palestinians. And this election of Hamas is a rejection of that status status quo. It's not simply because of the corruption. It's not simply because of the peace process. But when you put these things together with the ongoing occupation, um, the fact that uh, the Palestinian Authority security apparatus, despite the fact, again, that they're talked about at length here in North America, do absolutely nothing in the daily life of Palestinians. In fact, the Palestinian security forces, who one would think would be protecting the Palestinian population primarily, is in fact the first people to withdraw during an, inv an Israeli invasion, the, the formal, you know, the formal security forces who are incidentally trained by the RCMP, uh, they're the ones who withdraw 
and the, the militias, the underarmed popular militias of Hamas, uh, of Islamic Jihad, of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, popular uh, you know, militia factions are the ones that step up and fight against Israel. You know, you can't downplay this. You can't downplay the fact that uh, there's a relationship between uh, the amount that a, a Palestinian political faction is seen to be resisting the Israeli occupation uh, and concurrently their popularity amongst the Palestinian people. Naturally, it's a situation of occupation. It's a situation where Palestinians are being brutalized on a daily basis. Uh, naturally, that population is going to is going to side and ally themselves with that faction which is fighting the hardest and the most committed. And you know, you can see that the, the trend the trend of this has changed since the 60s and 70s, when the leftists, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, were more part of a global movement, a global left, uh, you know, supported by the Soviets, uh, and they were resisting actively. In the, you know, they were the leading element of the resistance, many say, and they were also very popular around that. time time. Uh, and things have changed. Hamas has stepped up since the first intifada uh, and have been fighting a principled, uh, you know, resistance regime against Israel. Now, is Hamas an Islamic movement? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, is that uh, the direction that the vast majority of the Palestinian population wants to move? No, it's absolutely not. But, there, you know, you're given, one is given alternatives uh, and you you know what is given to the Palestinians is what they select from they, they can't choose some sort of uh, abstract theory where they wish they could vote you vote for what's given to you and Hamas is the only legitimate real alternative to the Palestinian Authority and Fatah you know which represents the status quo a collaborationist corrupt and ineffectual status quo and it was only a matter of time before that was defeated. And uh, and Hamas, you know, the Palestinian population is uh, is well known to be tolerant, progressive, you know, whatever these terms mean. Um, but you know, an Islamic government is not uh, the most uh, historically. Um, uh, continual uh, historical progression for the Palestinians. It didn't lead to this point. Uh, it's because they are the only real alternative. There was 11 political parties that ran in the Palestinian elections, and 10 of them were secular. So you know, it gives you an idea. Right. But Hamas is strong, and Hamas you know, has legitimate leadership and legitimate authority on the ground. And just to you know, compare that back to what I began with, Hamas leaders drive around in, you know, 1988 Toyota Corollas. Again, it's anecdotal evidence, uh, but it speaks volumes. Did you just say volume?
That was Sleater Kinney with Far Away from their album One Beat. You're listening to G7 Radio. Chris, what did we hear before that? Derek, I'm going to tell you, that was Washington State's finest band ever in the history of music. That was Zeke with Crossroads from their album Death Alley. We're here with, what's his fucking name? John Schlederwitz. We're here with John Elmer. He's a photojournalist who just returned from Gaza, the Gaza Strip. The West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Gaza... <laughs> fucking idiot. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, uh, anyways, Johnny, more generally, can you give me a broad summation of why the average Canadian should give a shit about this conflict? I think... I mean, fundamentally, when you look at the amount of media coverage there is, uh, it's obvious that North Americans are interested and as well have interests in the conflict, you know, both socially, uh, economically and otherwise. It's obvious that uh, North America has a role to play in the conflict. But I think more generally, uh, when Canadians uh, understand the colonial processes that are going on in Palestine, uh, it's then easier to, to take what you've learned from that and apply it to other things, predominantly in Canadian situation, uh, maybe the occupation of Afghanistan, where Canadian troops are on the front line in Kandahar trying to achieve what the Soviets and the British Empire were unable to do in pacifying southern uh, Afghanistan, or in Haiti, where Canadian uh, interests and Canadian NGOs in particular are on the front lines of cementing uh, an illegitimate coup uh, in Haiti. Uh, maybe it'll be easier to understand processes in Iraq and elsewhere. Speaking of parallels, John, do you ever get any sense that the Western colonial states fear a resolution to this conflict as it might ah! <laughs> set a dangerous precedent for their status quo? Uh, there's no doubt that the entire world, uh, the colonial world, watches the Israel-Palestine conflict with great interest. And I think that's one of the reasons is because uh, it's a microcosm of these processes that have been going on elsewhere. In Canada, it's taken us 500 years, whereas in Israel, it's only been about 100 years. Uh, so things are, are much much clearer and much shorter period of time. And, and absolutely, uh, if you look at UN resolution voting on, on issues of indigenous sovereignty, uh, you'll find a lot of similarities between the United States, Canada, and Israel. John, I can't thank you enough, buddy, for coming in here. This was awesome. Yeah, that was... Uh... Do you have any reference material or resources that you tend to uh, offer to people that you can offer the G7 radio listening public who uh, want to learn more about this situ a no Sure. I, I think, you know, read, read, the, read the press, you know, read the National Post and compare the National Post's coverage uh, with, with Israel's leading daily Haaretz, which is available in English. Um, for sure, uh, there's no doubt, um, you know, mainstream media sources uh, fill a gap. I would, you know, recommend some scholarly journals, the Journal of Palestine Studies, uh, Middle East Report. These are solid uh, sources for information. But what I would say most importantly is that the confusion created uh, around information of the Israel-Palestine conflict is, is a strategy that's used by those in power. The conflict is, is actually quite crystal clear. It's quite simple, uh, and it's not as complex as people would have us believe. Just one more thing quickly, John. Uh, would you include in this strategy of confusion the frequent charges of anti-Semitism against critics of Israel as a way to silence debate? 
Hmm. Sure. Or just discredit the messenger. And I think that's always the most, you know, most effective way to, uh, yeah, to obfuscate a message is to, is to make the messenger uh, seem like uh, he or she is not credible. Um, you know, th- there is real anti-Semitism in the world, uh, you know, just as there are uh, myriad other forms of racism. Um, but I don't think the, you know, the equation of, of being an anti-occupation activist and, uh, you know, with being anti-Semitic is, I don't think it's legitimate. And I, I think if any Thing, it's actually numbed people to the term uh, and to the real potency of anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, I mean, the terms, you know, anti-Semitism, Semitism itself began as a, you know, pejorative term uh, in Europe for Jews. So, you know, the fact that we've come uh, to this sort of legitimacy of the terminology and, and to just uh, use it to throw around at any critic of Israel, uh, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. And I think, you know, the vast majority of world Jewry believes the same thing. All right, John Elmer, Canadian photojournalist. Anything else to add? I don't think so. I, I mean, sure. <laughs> we could talk for hours about it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Derek. Oh, is it still on? It's on. Oh, what a blooper. <laughs> it up for episode two of g7 radio podcast derek if i want to know more about this john elmer character what would i do you would log on to the internet it's a new thing and uh you would visit Mm. http colon backslash backslash from occupied palestine dot org org all right stay tuned for next month when we bring you a paranormal investigation of manitoba's most haunted church the St. Andrew's Cemetery. <laughs> also, stay tuned for next month when we bring you a live Animal Liberation Front action conducted by two unnamed, cool, good looking fellas. And now we leave you with a belated Valentine's Day song. Snaggletooth. By Motorhead!
Listening to 